This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. All right, with today's episode, we have finally reached the end of the track on the production phase of Speed. Today we'll be covering the third act of the movie, better known as The Subway Sequence. If you haven't heard our locations episode a few weeks back, detailing how they secured permitting and whatnot to shoot in what was, in 1993, a very new subway system in Los Angeles, I'd encourage you to do so. But this sequence goes far beyond the tunnels running underground from downtown to Hollywood. I've often said this is the part of the movie that really fires me up because, however you feel about the subway sequence in a narrative sense, that the movie feels like it's already over by this point, or what have you, you can't deny the craft on display here. We're talking about an amalgam of set decoration, rear screen projection technique, clever lighting conceptions, miniature model train work, and, of course, a full-blown stunt on Hollywood Boulevard as the subway bursts out and onto the street in front of the famed Man's Chinese Theater, just in time for Jack and Annie to catch a screening of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay, let's start digging in here. We'll begin with our guy, director Jan de Bont, talking about this blend of techniques. I, I just want to bring Sean Frankenheimer up again. That's what he did too. He tried to really make it all look so easy and so effortless. Well, there's an enormous effort being made to doing, getting it all right. The, the trick is to make all those different approaches seamless. They cannot stand out. If you do them seamlessly, Nobody's even aware of what it is. I mean, I don't want people to even think about, oh, that was rear screen and that was front, whatever. To me, it's like, I only wanted to think, oh my God, you know, in a tunnel on top of a train and they're almost killing each other. But right now, when you have those big visual effects movies, you know, everything's in effect. So you cannot trust anything. But here in this movie, because there's so many real life moments in it, you mix it up. That is no time to even consider. No, you don't see it. That is, I think, the trick that some old-time filmmakers were able to do extremely well. And here is visual effects journalist Ian Fails, certified speed super freak and one of the top minds on all this stuff. You know what's interesting is the model trains. If you watched just that clip of just the model work, it's one of those situations in movies where you know that it's a model, but you're okay with it. Maybe that's how sometimes I feel about old Star Wars, original Star Wars. It's like you kind of know that it's a model, but you, you, you accept it. And I feel like we're in sp- with Speed, we were still at that point where we were okay with, with like a bit of... In fact, the reason it works is because it's a bit of everything. Yeah. Full scale, you know, blue screen, reprojection models. You know, and because it's an action film, it all goes together so quickly. That's actually a very deliberate thing. And partly it was what they could do in 1993, 94, right? And in fact, if it was manicured too much, it wouldn't suit the grittiness of speed, you know, which mm-hmm. is shaky, moving camera, 
not shaky camera really, but it would feel too manufactured. Let's talk about designing these elements so that they look good on camera and how the aesthetic here differed from what we saw for an hour or so on the bus. We'll start with the interior subway car stuff. Here's production designer Jackson Degovia, followed by set decorator Casey Fox. It's a much sleeker and uh, up-to-date look. You know, uh, the bus itself, it's an old tool. Uh, and it's, it, it's the aesthetic of a previous generation. And the subway is like the way we would do it now. And it's glamorous. And it's, it, it's, higher, it's higher speed. And that's, you know, it is called speed. It's like the, the essence of speed. It's going faster. We had to rebuild a bus a chassis to look like the interior of the, of the metro of the subway, right? So all that subway material had to be screen printed uh, before we could use it. And there were all those brass fittings, uh, you know, stainless steel fittings, and everything came from some other country. You know, we went went through the city of L.A. transportation department and sort of picked through their um, graveyard for some samples of the kind of stuff. But it was all that that sort of job is is fairly thankless because you're just trying to make it look real. And here is gaffer Chris Strong talking you through the lighting design challenges. It was just, you know, complicated to, to make light changes because you're going past lights that are on the walls. And actually, where we put the uh, the subway car, and we took basically closest to the front end, we put uh, two lights on each side. We went about 100 feet away, and we put like eight by mirrors on 45 degree angles. So that we had lights on the left side of the bus going into a mirror to a mirror and coming back, and the same on the other side of the bus. So then when guys would do their hands or flags, it felt like lights changing on both sides of the bus. I mean, the subway car and changing color. Basically, if you're looking down at a sheet of paper and draw the bus in the middle and then quite a ways away on the, the left side and right side of the bus, you put a 45 degree angle, like eight by eight reflective at a 45 degree angle coming in the front corners. Then you go to the far end of the bus and that's where you put your lights. So the lights would go along the side of the bus, not going in it, but hitting the 45 on the one side which should bounce over to the 45 on the other side, which should come back down the other side of the bus, the subway car, sorry. And so we had lights on both sides and then people were doing stuff with their hands, with flags, and it really didn't exactly have to match what you saw outside, but it gave the feeling of it. So that's the interiors with Keanu and Sandra and Dennis doing their thing. Someone else was in that subway car though. Do you remember the poor driver of the thing who gets blown away by Howard Payne as he goes to reach for the radio? If you look closely, you'll see that that is well-known character actor Richard Schiff, although he was hardly well-known at the time. Now we move outside the subway car for a real mishmash of filmmaking techniques. So we're really going to get our hands dirty on some stuff. Let's start with the rear screen projection component and go back to director Jan de Bont to tee us up. The fight on the train, we could not do that in a VHL. They never, never let us, and also there wasn't really not enough space. And we needed just a little bit more headroom for them to really not getting hurt. That's just way too dangerous. So you film it in a way where the presence of the tunnel is really close. We're kind of claustrophobically close. 
that it is as a softness to it that you can feel more the speed of the tunnel than the actual the clarity of the tunnel. So it's a trick you have to do a little bit so that the focus will go to the actors only and to what they're doing. And then you have to make a background shot for every angle, the mm-hmm. front, from the side, whatever the camera is, those shots have to be first filmed. And then of course, rear projections. And, and these are really big rear projections because to get them on the camera close, on the t- you have to use a wide angle lens. And it means also the background screen has to be really big. Just to briefly explain, what this entails is going down into the subway at night when they're closed and mounting cameras on the top of a subway car so you can get visual effects plates. The crew would grab a number of different angles on a moving car that they would then lay in behind Keanu and Dennis in the fight sequence by projecting that footage onto a massive screen behind them as they duked it out on top of a stationary car. They set this all up at a massive airplane manufacturing facility in Downey, according to first assistant camera Vern Nobles Jr., and as far as I can tell, it would have been the old North American Aviation Downey plant which is where they built airplanes in the 40s and 50s, and then later stuff like the Apollo spacecraft and even space shuttles. It later became a full-fledged movie production space for films like Space Cowboys, Spider-Man, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, Iron Man, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. You needed a massive space for this because they needed a big throw for the projection of the moving subway footage. Throw meaning the distance from the projector lens to the screen. And the reason for that is they wanted it to be big and immersive behind the actors. Let's hear a little bit from visual effects supervisor Boyd Shermis on this technique. It was a huge pain in the butt to set up and use. And you didn't always get the results you wanted. It was the kind of thing you'd often see with driving footage. You know, with that image out the window. And, you know, you could always tell it was a rear projection because there was a bounce in the background that wasn't in the foreground or vice versa. And or the, you know, it looked washed out or grainy or whatever. And so you tried not to use it if you could avoid it back then. But it was something that for what we were planning on top of the train sequence in the subway was a perfect application for it. So Dave Joswicki and I spent, I don't know, a couple of nights on the, as at that time, the very new L.A. subway. And they gave us the subway and a couple of tunnels for a couple of nights to just set some VistaVision cameras up on a handful of trains, or one train, I should say, on a couple of different positions and get a bunch of footage, running footage of trains, so that we could put Dennis Hopper on the top of a train car set piece in front of a rear projection screen with kind of the perfect scenario, uh, the perfect way to use rear projection where a lot of its flaws weren't revealed because it was such a kinetic, fast-moving thing, and there was wind blowing and, you know, the trains rattling and rolling on the tracks. And, you know, if you didn't sync up, it sort of made sense, almost. The trains just kind of rolling and going crazy. It was the last time I ever used that technique, that technology and the visual effects of shooting Vision and doing rear projection with Bill Hansard and Sons. Uh, that was sort of the premier and maybe the only company that was doing pin-registered Vista-Vision rear projection at the time. You do what they call registered prints, which is where the lab really takes their time to get the prints steady and get the color exactly right. And you'd pay a premium, and you'd have to go through a bunch of iterations at the, the printing lab, uh, which at the time was CFI. It's called uh, 
uh, Consolidated Film Industries, I think it was called. CFI. And they would go out of their way, and it was very expensive, and you'd use the best film stock, uh, but they would print up just beautiful prints. That, and you could only run them through the projector a couple of times. You'd have to have multiple copies of these registered prints if you were intending to do multiple takes because they'd gather dust or they'd get a snake scra- or a print scratch on them or, you know, shit happened. It would, re- would reveal the gag. If that technique has come full circle. And what they're doing now with LED video walls in shows like The Mandalorian, that is today's equivalent of rear projection, where you, you would put somebody in front of a screen and there would be an image projected onto it. And if you're balancing your contrast and your, uh, you know, your blacks and your whites and your, your color, your color is all balanced and your exposure is balanced, you can get in camera what appears to be a composite image. Uh, but you're getting it live and you don't have the restrictions of your camera motion or uh, perspective and things of that nature. I mean, I told you we were about to get our hands dirty. We're deep inside the sausage maker at this point. But before we get into the train miniatures and whatnot, I had this interesting nugget from former Fox exec Jorge Saralegui. We haven't heard from him in a while because once production started, his role, being a development executive, sort of dwindled. But in the movie, after Payne gets his head knocked off on top of the subway car, you'll recall that Jack comes back to find Annie handcuffed to a pole. Then he goes into the cabin to try to stop the train or slow it down, but after Payne riddled poor Richard Schiff with bullets, he damaged the console. So nothing works, except apparently the accelerator. There's a curb ahead. I'm gonna speed it up. Make it jump the track. Well, apparently that whole beat was sort of cobbled together. The only person who had much memory of it was Jorge, so here's what he recalled. I think it felt like something was missing and we came up, or we or Josh came up with something. It was right at the end when uh, I think Hopper's dead and Keanu is driving the subway train. I'm actually not sure if we reshot something or not. No, I'm thinking about it. But what we did do is we changed the story. We either reshot it or this is one of those examples where we used existing footage and made up a moment. It's where Keanu says, I'm going to speed it up. Take a look at it. I'm almost positive. It's as you hear the line, not on his face. <laughs> now look at his face and tell me if you're driving that train. <laughs> And you're going a million miles an hour, you're about to crash. If you would look as relaxed as he looks. Since he would look pretty intense the whole movie, right? Take a look and look at his eyes and see if he looks a little unfocused. It's a non-take. Now, it's a fast cut, but that's like after a cut. It's in between takes. He's standing there. That's old footage that we repurposed. And then what we did, and this is what we reshot. I don't remember if Keanu himself did it actually or not. He probably did. But it's the hand pulling the lever back to speed it up. It wasn't going to be that. He actually pushes the lever forward. But anyway, I did want to circle back to Payne getting his head knocked off. I never did reach out to anyone on the makeup team to talk about stuff like Payne's disfigured hand or Beth Grant's ill-fated dummy that gets run over by the bus. But I did have this funny aside from key set production assistant Michael Rizzoli. 
we first heard from Michael in the grab bag episode two weeks ago. I've got some great photos I'll share at our website of him hanging out with Dennis Hopper during the shooting of this sequence, and more to the point, him hanging out with Dennis Hopper's decapitated head. Why was that head just laying around? Like, I'm taking all the right pictures. Like, that doesn't happen these days. Like, like the head was just on set, like, standing by. Like, I, I think I even remember somebody saying, Rizzoli, bring over the head. And I brought over the head. There's such special caretaking with things like that these days. Moving on, Boyd mentioned someone a moment ago named Dave Drizwicki, and it's just about time we get him into the mix. Dave was the visual effects director of photography on this sequence. He basically headed up, with Jan, a whole separate camera department to shoot these visual effects elements. He did the plate photography on the moving subway cars, and then he shot the model trains that were used for the big crash and derailment sequence. Dave is kind of amazing. He started, just like Boyd, with a company called Apogee, which was John Dykstra's visual effects company in the wake of the original Star Wars. As you talk to Dave, you realize how much he is a figure of another time in film production history who has evolved and kept himself quite relevant and in demand as a DP and camera operator. One of his credits is the visual effects DP on Christopher Nolan's Tenet, and you can certainly understand why a guy like Nolan, who counts speed as one of his favorite movies, would be interested in someone with a skill set like Dave's. I want to save some of this material for our visual effects episode that is still to come, but just to rattle off some more credits, Dave worked on Ghostbusters 2, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Volcano, Titanic, AI Artificial Intelligence, X2, and Iron Man 3, to name a few. Last we spoke, he had relocated to Atlanta, just like the industry had. He also has my heart, because he spends a great deal of time refurbishing old CRT television sets. Anyway, let's hear from Dave a bit. I shot the background plates, those RP plates also, and um, I know they were used in something else later on. Andrew Barkoviak remembered them and when he was shooting some other movie and he used, reused them. Uh, all that rear projection equipment from Hanzard, I think that stuff has been cut up and thrown into trash cans and bins. I don't think it even exists anymore. I know all that camera stuff that we use, the majority of that came from Apogee, and I think the guy that ended up with that gear just found that he had this giant warehouse full of stuff that nobody was going to ever use again, probably. So I think a lot of the, that equipment got thrown away too. You know, speed was one of those movies that, because up until that point, you didn't have a lot of this super frenetic handheld high octane camera movement sort of um, stuff. You know, movies were made differently. So Speak was like one of those early movies that had this, yeah, it's like an energy that came through camera movement that was unique. There were sort of conventions in filmmaking and cinematography in those days. I don't think they conventions really exist anymore. But there was the day of like this type of lighting was the way professionals light and this type of lighting was the way the amateurs light and, you know, that kind of sensibility. And I think Speed absolutely was one of the early movies that broke a lot of those barriers. It was a point of reference in terms of what he had in mind. And it was, and then also, in a way, it was just sort of me interested in how he would shoot something, you know, just asking him questions about, well, if you're going to shoot this you know, for real, how would you do it? You know, and then you sort of take those ideas and you scale them down. These trains are all one eighth scale. But they were heavy. Yeah, they might have been 150 pounds when they were all loaded with batteries and everything. So we're into the model train stuff now. These trains were built by a guy named Jack Sesums, who is no longer with us. 
but I wanted to have someone who could speak to what was going on in his shop, so I managed to track down a guy named Michael Seibel. Michael is a director and cinematographer who was credited as the photographic assistant for Sesame's engineering on Speed. It was actually from Michael that I got a good idea on the timing of when this was all being shot, by the way, because the official production dates for Speed were September 1st, 1993 to December 23rd, 1993. But this particular part of the sequence had not been shot yet when the year was up, and Michael recalls having to find alternate routes down to the Culver City set because of the damage caused by the Northridge earthquake on January 17, 1994. By this time, an assembly of speed had been screened and the studio was far more excited about its potential in the marketplace than they were at the start of production, so the pressure was on. Here's Michael. We were kind of gearing up, uh, I wouldn't say casually, but we were gearing up to do speed and the studio got a call from James Cameron saying, I'm not going to have true lies ready for its early summer release. I want at least another month and speed was all filmed except for the, you know, a few of the uh, things at the beginning with the elevator and toward the end with the wreck of the uh, subway cars. And they said, you know, we're going to move speed up. And there is this really, uh, how do I put it kindly, with compliment, a real tough lady at 20th Century Fox, a real, you know, assertive woman called us and said, and I'm sure she gave uh, Dave Druzwicki and the, uh, and the producers at Imageworks the same marching orders. You no longer have a personal life. You are going to work every day to the point of exhaustion and all day Saturday and all day Sunday until you are done. And I think we were at it around six weeks, but it was uh, almost like a wartime footing. And um, of course, after eight hours, we went into time and a half. After 12 hours, we went into double time. And then on Saturday, we started off at time and a half and went into, you know, uh, 3X. And on Sunday, we started at 3X. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I bought a BMW after a couple of weeks. It's like James Cameron says when he was accused of possibly abusing his crew on Titanic. He said, I get the best people available and I pay them really well. And they're here as a, as a result of their own decision-making. I'm not forcing anybody to do anything. So you just have to know you're going to go on a, a holy crusade or a, a big, you know, a war thing, you know, it's kind of fun actually being in the trenches with these guys. On that point of a time crunch, here's Boyd Shermus. Well, what that meant to us on the post side of things was that we didn't have time to do anything. We were working seven days a week around the clock, quite literally trying to, get these miniatures photographed and then get it into a post-production pipeline. And at a certain point, the studio just didn't care about the money. They were, as we often said back in those days, backing up the Brinks truck and handing us wads of money just to make sure it got done on time. Because the, you know, the release slot that True Lies vacated, uh, you know, they had to put something in there. And it was the only other thing to put in there at that point was uh, speed. I want to come back to Michael here, though, to help paint this picture of Jack Sessoms. 
It sort of bums me out that these two titans of miniatures, Jack Sessoms and Grant McCune, who did the elevator shaft miniature, aren't here to speak on all of this because this stuff is a massive component of the bookending sequences on speed. But for Jack's part, I think Michael is a wonderful spokesman, so here's what he had to say about the man. Jack Sessoms himself was the son of an army general. Gosh, I, I hope I got that right. I, I, I'm pretty sure U.S. Army. When uh, the World War II ended, Jack's dad was in charge of the occupation of the Philippines. And um, Jack, as a kid, grew up going out into the jungle and finding these old tanks that were blown up. And he, I think he had a collection of munitions at one point that he got from the tanks. The Department of Defense actually raided Jack's bedroom <laughs> and confiscated a bunch of stuff. So that was when Jack was a teenager. And Jack just grew up building stuff, exploding stuff, and all of that. Uh, I don't think he had a formal education per se, but he had like always three or four Chevys, 55 through 57, always built. He actually started manufacturing parts for 57 Chevys to sell to collectors all over the country. So Jack was this guy who could take one look at something and figure out how it was made, how it worked, and all of that. Well, concurrent to all this are these guys who are fanatics about railroads, miniature railroads, live steam engines, where you actually fill it up with whatever charcoal or burning material it is boil the water and it's self-propelled so jack was just this guy who kind of never grew up and a really likable guy he had a number of friends some of them were real actual train engineers guys that really run the trains that you see going through the country none of them really liked la you know they, they came in now and then if they had a gun to their head you know just as an aside when we would go like for broken arrow or some of the other other features uh, up in um, the Page, Arizona area. We'd be driving along. We'd have a caravan of maybe five to six vans, cargo vans, whatever. And whenever there was a sign that said fireworks on the right, <laughs> blinkers all went on and we would pull over and buy a ton of fireworks. Uh, so, you know, just guys playing in a sandbox. But uh, Jack could uh, hold his own with any studio effects guys. And we got to know every one of them at the time. And so at a certain point in our juncture, my film crew became kind of de facto partners with Jack. I mainly handled all the photography in town, whether it was Panavision, Hill Production Service or whatever. I interacted with the labs. I picked the film stocks. I interacted with the directors of photography who were first unit and all of that. And Jack was about materials, train trucks. What are the exact kind of wheels and what kind of miniature springs make it look like an authentic, you know, uh, especially in motion where you would not pick up, even if you were somewhat of an expert, any false indications that it was a miniature and not the real thing. So I think that's a pretty solid assessment of the guys we're dealing with here. Now, Michael mentioned Imageworks a moment ago, as in Sony Pictures Imageworks, Sony's in-house visual effects company that had literally just started when Speed came in as a client. 
If speed wasn't their first feature, it was their second. They shot all this derailment stuff with the miniatures in a building a few streets over from the Sony lot in Culver City. Dave even remembered the street, Hayden Place. That's where the ImageWorks facility was, and so they built up a soundstage to shoot the crash and all of that. Let's go back to Michael. So for speed, I became a production manager, and when we were filming, I operated B camera or A camera, whatever. Um, if you were to look at the film and you see a really tight shot of the train car being panned, I followed that thing with about two inches on either side of it perfectly. So that that was one of my things that I picked up as a DP or an operator was uh, when you're doing miniatures, you shoot in high speed and things happen more quickly to recover the momentum and the inertia and all the other physical characteristics of a miniature to make it look real. When we were filming at Sony Imageworks, we had to build the train tracks out the building and up a ramp so that they would come down at a certain speed. And I believe, unless I'm corrected, but they were one inch scale. So these train cars were about 10 feet long. And um, there are all kinds of formulas. And, and I, I'd like to think they're from the D Tibetan Book of the Dead, but they're actually in the ASC manual. Plus we picked up the formulas ourselves and perfected them. What's the one to one ratio for a one inch? You know, 84 frames, somewhere in there. Uh, 120 will give you a slight, slightly dampened look and all of that. Back to Boyd Shermis. Like the taillights on the train uh, were shot separately and independently from the train car itself because the exposures had to be done differently. So it was shot with motion control. And motion control allows you to shoot the same camera movement multiple times and get the exact same camera movement. But you can set different exposures for different things, be it lights or a background or the train or a reflection or, you know, you want to fill in some shadows, shadow pass, or you want to create a shadow, what have you. But you shoot all these things separately and then you layer them together in a composite image. While we're on this, I want to bring in a guy named Ron Brinkman. There isn't a ton to talk about from a post-production visual effects standpoint on this sequence. I mean, there is, but we'd be stuck in the weeds for quite a while. So, rather than save this bit for our upcoming visual effects episode, I figure I'll throw Ron in here now. Ron was the computer graphics supervisor for Sony Pictures Imageworks on the team. Here's what he recalled of working on the subway crash sequence. The CG stuff in that was nice because it was, it was just like multi-pass stuff. It was all repeatable movement for the most part, so shoot a second pass with just the lights on. And we can comp those in later and control how much of that light you see, and you, know, you get a nice trail of all that. A little bit of cleanup work, if I remember right, you know, pulling some C-stands out of the shots and uh, adding dust. I'm sure we added sparks. That was actually our crew t-shirt was, uh, Jan was always like, I think we need more sparks. We need more sparks in this. And uh, so <laughs> I remember the crew t-shirt, at least one of them was, I need more sparks. And so I'm, I, I absolutely remember like tossing, you know, putting extra sparks on. I mean, a lot of sparks were practical, but we ended up adding a few more. Or comping in some practical, additional practical ones, but like you know, when the brakes were were locking up, or the the wheels were going against the the stuff and everything. So yeah, I mean, it was it was the kind of the visual effects stuff that's sort of fun, where you're just augmenting and cleaning up and enhancing it a little bit without going out of control on it. But for the most part, I mean, it was you know a a large miniature running through a giant tunnel that was built and, and crashing and going off the rails. And you know, some of the shots are just little insert shots of 
you know, the wheels squealing and everything like that. You know, Jan de Bont is famous for multiple takes. And uh, the same with Boyd Shermus. When I was around Boyd and he was talking to uh, Grant about the he- elevator sequence, it was do it again, do it better, do it, do it this way, do it that way. But we did that in one take. Three cameras, one take. Jan de Bont said, that's it. Put it in the movie. And now the big finale. After the train derails, it comes barreling out of an incomplete subway station and out onto Hollywood Boulevard. I think we did a pretty good job of covering that in the locations episode a few weeks back, but remember, that was another bus outfitted to look like a subway car. And there was more to it than that. Here's stunt driver Gil Combs. The jump coming out of the sign, I think that was Smurfs did that jump. Um, And then when it lit on its side, we built a deal where... um, there was a pickup truck inside that that moved it because it was just slightly off the ground, you know, continuing the slide down the street or it taps that tour van. That I drove. I was inside driving the truck uh, that was making that thing move on its side. And set decorator Casey Fox one more time. That was very well crafted. Those were a lot of spots. And then in the end, that sort of ricochet system that when it finally breached the street in front of the El Capitan Theater, how they made that happen was just fascinating. I mean, it was like this giant rubber band thing that just allowed it to to just push through. And not to repeat a joke, but cue the Billy Idol. How about that? Guys, that's it. We're done shooting. We have all of our footage. We've gone from downtown to Venice to Santa Monica to Long Beach to the 105 freeway to Los Angeles International Airport to the Mojave Desert to the Fox Lot to the subways to an aircraft manufacturing facility to a Culver City soundstage and finally, smack dab in the middle of Hollywood. What a legendary production. Four months of work. But you heard Michael, the pressure is on. We've got a fast approaching release date, so now we've got to put all of this material together. It's time for post-production. But we're going to step away for the holidays. I think we've all earned it. So take a break. Thanks for listening. Our best to you and your loved ones. We will see you in the new year. Here's what to expect. Next year, on 50 miles per hour, we move from the film set to the post-production suite as film editor John Wright begins his soon-to-be Oscar-nominated work. The tempo of the movie is really for a big part thanks to him. That's why gifted editing is so important. He was nominated for the Oscar that year, and I'll go to my grave saying he should have beat Forrest Gump. In his last interview ever, the late John Wright details his efforts in assembling one of the greatest action films of its era and his collaboration with Jan de Bont. Working with documentaries, I learned how to tell a story with film even if it wasn't real structured. And it helped me a lot in speed. I could tell by his reaction, he was very happy and very surprised. He didn't particularly spend much time in the editing room and I don't think that's because he didn't care. I'm not sure he knew what he was supposed to do when it came to my relationship with him. All of that and more next year, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. 
You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.